Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode is on considering novel therapies for HIV, featuring Christina Mussini, Head of the Department of Infectious Diseases and Tropical Medicine, and full Professor of Infectious Diseases at Infectious Diseases Clinics at University Hospital, University of Medina and Reggio Emilia in Medina, Italy, and William Short, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases, Department of Medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They'll discuss novel therapies for HIV prevention and treatment, and following their dialogue, the faculty will field questions from healthcare professionals. This episode is taken from our series on key decisions in HIV care. You can follow along with the slides, which are available in the show notes. Let's get started and listen in to Drs. Mussini and Short. Thank you, Jessica. So in this first slide, uh, we have the summary of PrEP eligibility by regimen. You see that we have different recommendation on the basis of the different population at risk that we are considering. The only one uh, that is for now in Europe uh, available uh, for all uh, person at risk uh, is the daily tenofovir uh, diproxylfumarate FTC. It is also FDA approved and recommended by all guidelines, including EX guidelines, and it's uh, uh, available for MSM, transgender women, heterosexual men, heterosexual women, and transgender men. For TAF, uh, considering this is the daily uh, drug, if we consider the on-demand tenofovir diproxylfumarate on the basis of the hypergay study, only MSM could be treated with PrEP with this schedule on demand. And it's uh, recommended in Europe, uh, since it was also an European study conducted in France, in France, but also it is off-label, but recommended by ISS, USA, and WHO guidelines. As I said, no data, we have no data for the other population at risk. On the basis of the discovered trial, TAF, FTC are recommended for MSM, transgender women, heterosexual men, while it is off-label and not recommended for heterosexual women and transgender men. Long-acting cabotegravir is not actually recommended in Europe because it has not been registered by EMA, but while in the state it is recommended because it has been studied, as we will see, in all the population at risk, so it will be it is recommended for all the population, uh, but in the US. Uh, considering the pivoting ring, vaginal ring, it is unavailable in the US, it is unavailable in Europe, but EMA gave a positive option only in high burden settings, uh, and it's WHO uh, recommended. So we talk uh, uh, about the novel PrEP strategies, and the most recent is for sure the injectable cabotegravir-1. The recommendation by FDA has been made on the basis of two uh, studies, one F, um, phase 2B, phase 3, that is the 
or uh, the HPTN 083, and the other one is uh, a phase three, that is uh, the 084 trial. These two trials were very similar. They were pretty the same. They only enroll different population at risk. The 083 enroll MSM and transgender women, while the 084 cisgender women. And uh, they both start, they, the comparator was uh, tenofovir FTC daily prep, and uh, they were, it was a placebo control, they were placebo control trial. The trial duration of the long acting was three years. And after three years, all patient enroll uh, received for one year for free uh, tenofovir diproxylfumarate FTC every day as PrEP. So uh, the efficacy, as you can see, the, uh, both studies uh, uh, reach superiority of cabotegravir and the uh, number of events in cabotegravir in the uh, 083 was 13, while in the comparator was 39 with a protection of uh, 66% of cabotegravir, uh, while in the O84, it was four in the cabotegravir arm. I remember that this study was conducted in cisgender women, a population that has always been difficult to treat with PrEP and where the results were really not very good. So four in the cabotegravir arm and 36 in the tenofovir FTC arm with a protection that was 89%. But let's have a look at the infection that uh, they were found in the uh, O83. As you can see, uh, really the population that was enrolled was a population really at risk because four patients already, four people already had the infection at baseline. So before starting the trial, even if they uh, got the results after the starting of the trial, five patients, five infections happen after a prolonged delay in cabotegravir dosing. So you know that the window is uh, two months with the tolerance tolerance of another week or two, but if you prolong this period, you could be uh, without protection, and this happened in five of them, while uh, three infections happened during the oral lead-in in uh, uh, both arms, because also cabotegravir for the first five weeks was uh, uh, at an oral lead-in, while you know now that FDA said that uh, uh, the oral lead-in you know, uh, could be skipped. Uh, Why the last spore infection uh, happened in the O83, despite uh, a perfect dosing of cabotegravir. Uh, so after one year of unblinding, we see that uh, there were a few new infections, 13 additional infections on cabotegravir, Two were newly identified cabotegravir infection during the blinded period. As I will tell you, there has been a, a latency in the uh, diagnosis, and both of them were on time. So there were four before and two now. So we are talking about six infections in the O83 infection in patients who 
really were on time in their cabotegravir dosing, while 11 were during the unblinded period, one with one-time injection and three with delayed injection, and seven with more than six months after cabotegravir. So to date, among 2,244 participants randomized to long-acting cabotegravir, there were seven breakthrough infections on cabotegravir despite on-time dosing. And uh, this is the O84, and you see that uh, there was one infection at baseline. We were talking about four infections. One was at baseline, two were uh, in the absence of long-acting cabotegravir injection, and one uh, was uh, in a patient that had a delay. So uh, in uh, the O84, there were no major instant mutation in the cabotegravir arm, and, uh, but the problem was the delay in the diagnosis. Uh, so we are starting to think, uh, I mean, all the experts are starting to think that probably in patients who are on PrEP, uh, and there were a few questions uh, uh, yesterday on this topic, uh, in those patients, maybe HIV RNA would be uh, a better uh, diagnostic uh, tool. So when we talk about uh, monitoring and safety in uh, people undergoing long cabotegravir for PrEP, in HPTN 083, HIV detection with antigen-antibody testing was delayed compared with qualitative HIV RNA testing, exactly as I said before. So the delay was very long because cabotegravir delays was 62 days for baseline infection and 98 days for incident infection. So very long. That's why the patients were exposed to drugs. And uh, FTC uh, TDF delays was 34 days for baseline infection and 31 days for incident infection. And again, also this. Seven participants in the trial received long-acting cabotegravir after HIV infection. And this led to the development of five patients with INSTI resistance. And this will be important with the widespread use of long-acting cabotegravir. We will face new naive patients with INSTI resistance at baseline, while now INSTI resistance is pretty rare. Two were not tested because they, uh, it, uh, they had uh, an HIV RNA below uh, 500 copies at all visits. As I said, in most cases, it was determined that screening with an HIV RNA assay would have detected infection before a major instiram or accumulation of additional major instiram. So it would be important for this. Uh, considering injection site reaction, they were common. It's an injection, so it's normal to have injection side reaction, rea uh, reaction. But the most important thing is that uh, this rare, rarely led to discontinuation. Uh, zero in HPTN O84 and 2.4% in the O83. So uh, I just want to hear Bill about uh, his experience because unfortunately, we don't have long acting prep. Uh, in uh, Europe for now. So uh, I'm just uh, looking for his suggestion. Yesterday, for example, we were talking about transgender uh, women. And I think that with silicone, for example, I think that uh, we are 
just uh, understanding the best way to administer also this drug. So please, uh, Bill. Thank you. Uh, you know, I think we are still working through our flow for this. You know, we have much more experience with long-acting capotegravirapivirine, but uh, we are now getting sort of adjusting our flow to a similar thing where, you know, we try to make sure we have a multidisciplinary team to sort of handle, you know, all the different components of this. So, you know, I have a little bit of experience with it, talking to patients, some are interested, some are not. So it's still very interesting. It's, I feel like the prevention side and the therapeutic side are very, very different. For the prevention side, I find more are not wanting to go to injectable, which is interesting to me. But the ones we do have on it, they really like it. Again, I think the hardest part is getting into the flow in the clinic. And, and like you said, I mean, a lot of the hurdles that we had, we were able to work through when we when we dealt with the treatment form, the long-acting cabropivirine. So I think we sort of got through that. Now it's just a matter of making sure we get patients in. And, and I think the other piece that's really we're still scratching our head about is how to do testing. Do we do viral load testing on everybody? You know, you know, looking at the PrEP guidelines are different. And, you know, we actually had a really great presentation this morning, looking at the PrEP guidelines and, you know, how hard it is to, you're sort of making, you know, these are healthy individuals coming in for prevention and you're making these very complicated visits with screening for, <laughs> it's just, it's very, very complicated. So we are still working through our, difficulties, so to speak. Um, uh, yes. I remember to the audience that they uh, can ask questions uh, and we will see them. So if you are interested in uh, any of the aspects that we are treating, uh, we will have also time, time at the end uh, uh, for question and answer. So when we talk also about there are different uh, drugs that uh, uh, should be developed uh, for PrEP, but actually both of them have been put on hold for different reasons. One is Islatravir, uh, that is in clinical development for treatment and prevention of HIV, multiple PrEP formulations that are very interesting because oral tablet is once monthly. As Bill was saying, you know, maybe there are some uh, people who are reluctant to receive injections and once a month pill would be uh, ideal for them or even subdermal implant that is once yearly potentially with, con uh, with contraceptive. So it would be very interesting, but the problem is that the Zlatravir PrEP program, program as Zlatravir treatment program has be, have been placed on hold by FDA due to the observed decreases in total lymphocytes and CD4 cell counts in clinical trials. With other uh, issues, but also nenacapavir, that is an HIV capsid inhibitor that uh, I will talk about uh, in, a, in a few seconds, is in clinical development for treatment and prevention of HIV. Uh, long-acting formulation, because it's a long-acting drug, uh, and it's a, a subcutaneous injection every six months. So it's really uh, interesting about and challenging about this. But uh, the problem is that now it has been put on hold due to concerns about compatibility between the drug and the borosilicate virus. So we will see uh, what uh, I know that they are uh, working in order to solve this problem. And I'm pretty confident that. Uh, while for Islatavir is more difficult, uh, I think it will take uh, 
uh, a few more times than to find a new bias for lenacapavir, I think. So when we talk about novel initial therapy, uh, we don't have a lot, but it's for me that I'm in the field since 30 years ago. It's still fascinating that there are new drugs and, and new challenges uh, uh, and new projects uh, uh, and perspectives. So this idea of long acting is very, very interesting. I know that Bill will talk about it uh, much more in detail after me, but uh, uh, the only drug that I will talk about is lenacapavir. They have conducted the Calibrate trial. As you see, it's not a large trial. We are talking about less than 200 subjects and very small groups. So we have two groups uh, that until week 28 uh, were treated, were receiving uh, either lenacapavir subcutaneously uh, plus uh, FTC. But once uh, they got undetectable, they were switched to do a regimen, one with lenacapavir plus TAF and the other one with lenacapavir plus bictegravir alone. Uh, while the two other arms were on the, in triple therapy, one with lenacapavir plus uh, FTC TAF, uh, both uh, oral, so everyday treatment, and uh, the same for oral bictarvi. When we look at the results, the week 54 virologic outcome that were presented at CROI earlier this year, we see that uh, there was not a huge difference between the arm, uh, either in the intention to treat analysis or in the snapshot. It's important to underline that we are really treating our patient in a very good way, for example, with Big Tarmy. So, it's difficult for a new drug to be introduced in clinical practice with results that are better than a percentage of undetectability that is above 90%. So we will see, we are talking about very few patients. It's more a proof of concept than a real trial. It's possible that a dual combination is feasible, but obviously, uh, talking about a long-acting, I don't know if using a long-acting and then a pill every day of a single drug or of two drugs, it's really innovative when we compare it with three drugs in one pill every day. And also, I have to agree with Chloe Orkin that during the, uh, the Croix talk said that uh, probably, and we will see also the data on the long-acting already available in treatment uh, that Bill will, will present, uh, it seems like this new long-acting drug uh, don't have the, the same high genetic barrier that we are used to have with the new drugs that we are using. So I, most recent drugs that we are using. So uh, it is not surprising that uh, in the few patients that fail, some of them develop, uh, even if it was a uh, in triple therapy with a TAF FTC, one subcutaneous and the other one oral, there was the development of resistance at failure. So it would, there was incomplete adherence because, as I said, a schedule that is mixed is not so easy. And also, having more peers, we know that usually led to a worse adherence than a single tablet regimen. 
it's important to know that both of these uh, patients resuppress with uh, uh, a trypotherapy with INSTI and two NRTI, NRTIs. Uh, so it was well tolerated, but uh, there was an injection site reaction, mostly of grade one and two, one of grade three. There were three discontinuation due, due to injection site reaction. So we have also to consider this. And uh, with pleasure, I introduce uh, Bill Short that will talk about uh, novel switch strategies. Great, thank you so much. So now we're gonna switch gears and we're gonna talk about switch strategies and, and really about novel switch strategies. As you know, if you're in practice, we do a lot of switching. There have been numerous studies involved in switching not only within class, but between classes of drugs. So there really are studies, but this is going to be a different type of switch. And that's switching to a long acting injectable, which was something new. And, and as we know, this was FDA approved a little over a year ago. So this is a follow-up. This was the Atlas 2M study, again, looking at that long acting cabotegravir emeropivirine. And this was comparing every eight weeks versus four weeks. And again, to put this in context, when it received its initial approval, it was for an oral lead-in followed by every four-week injections. And now this was looking in a subset in that Atlas-2M study of comparing Q8 week versus Q4 weeks. Just quickly walk you through the study design and then show you that this analysis we're going to talk about, uh, which was presented at Croy, is focused on the week 152, uh, which you see here in the study schema. So these were two populations. Um, they were adults from both the Atlas trial where they were receiving long-acting cabin and long-acting repivirine every four weeks or standard of care ART, and patients receiving standard of care ART that were outside of ATLAS. And you can see here, they were stratified by prior exposure if they had been on cab and repivirine to then get oral cab at 30 milligrams with repivirine 25 milligrams. And again, this was except the ATLAS participants that were receiving the long-acting treatment already. That was for four weeks or 28 days, and then they were randomized into one of two arms. So it was basically long-acting cab with ropivirine. Uh, and this was IM every eight weeks. And then the other arm was the same thing, but it was every four weeks. And what you note that's difference between the two is the dosing. For the Q, eight weeks, it's 600 a cab with 900 ropivirine. And in the Q4, it's uh, 400 and 600, which were um, obviously studied in the Atlas of Flare trials. So the primary endpoint we saw was that HIV viral load greater than 50 copies of week 48 by the FDA snapshot, and it was an intent to treat exposed population, that Q8 weeks was found to be non-inferior to Q4 weeks of week 48. And again, now we're going to look at the Q, uh, the week 152 endpoints, and you see them all listed there. So we're going to look at plasma viral load. Remember, this is a suppressed population, so we want to see the percentage that were greater than or equal to 50 or less than 50 at week from, well, 152, confirmed virologic failure incidents, viral resistance to those who met that definition of confirmed virologic failure, safety tolerability, and then treatment satisfaction, which we'll look at by patient reported outcomes. So here we are, here's the 100, week 152 outcomes. Just as you can see, I mean, the, the lines here looking at virologic success, clear across, there really is nothing that stands out. And just so you have a sense of what this graph shows, if you look in the blue and red, which is the graphs to your left the, in the histogram, they are the intent to treat exposed population. And the ones to the right are the uh, per protocol. 
population that you saw. And again, clear across, you saw that there was no difference. There were 13 participants who had confirmed virologic failure. 11 were in the Q8 week, um, which was 2% of the population. And, and Q4 week was two or less than 1%. And none had injection that were more than seven days late. So it really was not about that. So these were not patients who came in late. And again, if you look here at those patients, so of those 11 in the Q8, nine of them had ropivirine rams, and then eight had insti rams. And then the Q4, you can see one had ropivirine and two had insti. As we talked about in other studies, and it's the same here, long-acting cabin ropivirine was well-tolerated. 99% of the injection site re reactions that were seen were in that grade one and two, so mild to moderate. And the median duration of symptoms was about three days. And then you can see here the percentage of patients. So it's around two, 3%, two in the Q8 week arm and three in the Q4 week that withdrew to, to injection site reaction. And patient satisfaction scores, as you might think, significantly favored Q8 versus Q4 week. And, and I can mirror this from our clinic when we've asked patients to almost none. I think we've had one say, I would absolutely rather commit every four weeks. So most people are really excited to move into, into the Q8 week dosing. This is something that is constantly asked. You know, I know I get called all the time asking, what are the what are the things we think about for failure? How would I know if this person's at risk for failure? You know, and I always draw people to the package insert. And I think that's really important to look at what is the indication for long-acting cabropivirine. It's not someone who has multiple mutations, multi-drug resistant virus trait. It's very clear and it's highlighted here. It's for those on a stable regimen and it was, you know, what the recommendations are, how long you should be suppressed for, with no history of treatment failure and no known or suspected risk resistance to either one of the components. So to cabotegravir, the integrase, or ropivirine, the NNRTI. So this was a post-hoc analysis. And again, I think this is very, very useful um, to use in clinic or when you're you're thinking about your patients and who would be associated for a confirmed virologic failure. And this was a post hoc analysis done on the week 48 phase three data. So Atlas and Flare at the Q4 week dose and then Atlas 2M, which was both Q4 and Q8 dosing. You can see about 1.25%, so 13 out of over 1,000 had confirmed virologic failure. And then you can see a very large, about 97% with zero or one risk factor for confirmed virologic failure and 0.4% had confirmed virologic failure, which is again, a small number. Q8 week dosing, and I think this is really important, was not a significant factor associated with confirmed virologic failure. And a lot of people have asked that, if I switch, is this really going to cause some problem? And this is not what was seen. What you look here and see is that there's two parts to this. So what were the factors that were associated in that multivariable analysis? And there were four. So it was having ropivirine um, resistance mutations at baseline. Again, you see all the odds ratios. The week eight ropivirine trough concentration having baseline viral subtype of A6A1, and then BMI at baseline, so a one-unit increase in BMI. These were the factors that were associated. But interesting enough, just having one of those was not enough. So you can see here, if you look at confirmed virologic failure, if you had none of the baseline factors, your confirmed virologic failure rate was about 0.4 and 95% chance of achieving a viral load less than 50 copies. Same thing with one. But look what happens when you get above two, that number bumps. So 26% had concern virologic failure. And again, you can see percentage chance of percentage getting to undetectable, which was 71%.
the way I look at this is, you know, not one one specific factor was associated with confirmed virologic failure. It really was two or more. And then also the Q8 leak dosing was not a factor that was associated with confirmed virologic failure. So I hope this slide is very helpful and I think very useful for you in terms of um, clinic. The other thing that's really exciting and and I'll do a quick pause is that, you know, recently as of March, 2022, the oral lead-in is optional according to the FDA approval prescribing information. And what you see here, there was a, a direct to inject. So a switching to long-acting cabropivirine without an oral lead-in. This was the flare extension study. And what you can see is that patients who were receiving the standard of care, so diotegravirobacteria 3TC, achieve viral suppression defined as, which we see here, viral less than 50 copies, but actually switched to monthly long-acting cabropivirine at week 100. And then you can either elect to start with or without. So a fair balance, about 121 started with the oral lead-in, 111 started without. And what you see here, and I won't walk you through every single one, there was really no difference between the two. So in terms of achieving viral load less than 50 copies, 99% that went direct to inject and 93% in the oral lead. And, and again, very similar rates of virus flow greater than 50, and then no virologic data down here. So really, really exciting, I think. A lot more options for patients now. We have the FDA approval of the Q8 week dosing, and as well as having an optional oral lead-in phase. I'll briefly talk about this uh, for a second. As a reminder, when you have someone who is a pregnancy potential, so anyone who could get pregnant, Remember when giving long-acting um, cabropivirine that these drugs can stay in your system for very long periods of time. And I will just briefly draw your attention to this. So these were patients who were enrolled in clinical trials associated with this uh, combination. And per the clinical trial protocol, the injectable was discontinued. And in this case, it was all women were switched to alternative ART regimens. But it's important to know what were the outcomes of those pregnancies that we saw. So 26 pregnancies occur. And what you see here is the disposition of them. So there were 11 live births, eight elective abortions, seven spontaneous, six were in the first trimester, and zero stillbirths. So you can see this. And again, this is really important. We need this data because I think the bottom line really is a punch you right in the, right in the stomach type of thing that you should really walk away from this knowing that after discontinuing the injectable, so the person was getting long-acting cabropiprene, the concentrations of each were sampled for about 52 weeks after the last dose. So that is really important when you are planning and discussing and having conversations about maybe using this as a novel switch strategy. It's really important to let patients know that despite discontinuing the drug, based on this PK sampling, you still will have concentrations sampled out long after you stop the injection. So this is really important to know. I'm going to stop. I know, Christina, I learned yesterday you're not using this much in the clinic. And I'll just say not yet. Not yet, not yet, but soon. You know, we have had really great success with this. I mean, we had a lot of stumbling blocks, but, you know, unlike PrEP, you know, this is, and they're two different populations. You know, we first met, I had one of the first patients who rolled on it. It was really, really exciting. Uh, for this patient, she has wanted to be on an injectable forever because she did not want to have to take a pill every single day. She lives with family members who are unaware, and she was always so fearful. So she has wanted this, and she was my absolute first patient. And we have grown in our sort of implementation of this and bringing it into our clinic. 
now that we have this really tremendous flow that we go through and you know we're putting more and more and more patients on this and it's really become exciting so i will say i think again i mentioned it earlier on just a reminder making sure you're aware of anyone who may have implants you don't want to inject into an implant and cause a leak but it's important and I, and i also encourage you if you are someone who is using or have different protocols you know these should be shared around you know i hear from many people that they can't implement this in their clinic they don't have flow and it's really good to share your sort of best practices christine i don't know if you want to add anything before we move on yeah no i was thinking something that you said yesterday about uh, a patient that has a bmi very very high bmi and so this is a even if uh, i know the data that you have presented are very uh, reassuring because it's not just one risk factor that affects the efficacy of the drug. But I have to say that BMI is something that scares me even more than the genotype uh, or a certain way. So could you tell us about? Yeah, sure. No, I have a, a patient who is very, very interested in the injectable for many reasons, a lot of drug-drug interactions. And she's on a, a drug now. She's on a, a combination that involves ropivirine. You know, and I'm very nervous. Her BMI is in the high, in the mid 50s. And so I'm very, very nervous for many reasons. You know, one, I think you want to make sure you have the right size needle. So, you know, it's, it's again, things we probably don't even think about in clinic because other than, you know, I try to think what things are we giving shots, you know, maybe Depo-Provera, you know, Ceftriaxone, but, you know, now we're doing a lot more and C-Track technique. And I was trying to think of her, her body and, the amount of adipose tissue. And I was so afraid. And I'm like, you know, we need at least a three inch needle here because the amount of adipose, you would basically be injected the adipose. So we have not started the process yet. We're really struggling. Like you said, I mean, I'm very worried about this BMI and it was one of the factors that was associated. And, you know, and I'm just pulling, but, you know, maybe if we're not going to get this all into the muscle, there goes your other factor because you maybe will not have an adequate Ropivirine trough. I mean, I don't know. I'm making this up, but I agree. It's very, very worrisome. So, you know, again, these are the logistical issues that really need to be talked about. For example, we're looking for three inch needles and not every place has them. And someone said, well, inch and a half. And I said, absolutely not. You're never, not even two inches. I would never consider that in this person because you're, you're totally going to object to data post. So these are the things that you need to process through when you're coming up with your workflows. I have to say that the other problem that we have, for example, in Italy, is that uh, drugs could be delivered uh, only at the hospital. And uh, something that is of concern is about an eventual, I hope that they will not, but uh, an eventual new COVID uh, uh, wave, uh, you know, that could affect uh, negatively all the venues. So it's, uh, it's a little bit challenging i think so that's why we are already preparing ourselves uh, and setting the, the things uh, in order to you know receive the patient have an electronic agenda in order to have them on appointment as you said everyone has to find this way to put the injectables in his routine i want to finish up with novel therapy for uh, heavily treatment experienced patients i want to remind you to please Feel free to type your questions in. 
uh, when I finish up the last couple of slides, so that way we can address any of them. Uh, yesterday we had a great uh, series of questions, and you know we were happy to stay over to it because they were such amazing questions. So please feel free to type while I'm finishing this up. So just a reminder, when you're selecting a new regimen for treatment experience patients, and I think this applies to all treatment, there's some very basic principles that even though you think you may know, it's really important to hear over and over again. But when you're looking at and or doing a drug resistance test, it's important to remember that that resistance testing should be done while the patient is receiving the failing regimen. Because if you've stopped the drug and it's been two, three months, you know, the, the possibility that that resistance mutation is there, the, the resistance mutation may have actually um, gone away and you revert it back to wild type. It's very different when you compare it to transmission, um, transmitted resistance, which we see in naive patients. So the general rule of thumb is you want to test within four weeks of therapy discontinuation. Kind of after that, it's sort of a really think about what are you going to gain from this. And if you get a genotype back with no mutations, but you know this person is very, very treatment experienced and has multi-drug resistance, do you really trust that genotype? When you're constructing a new regimen, new regimen should at least contain two fully active agents and at least one of them having a high barrier to resistance. If you don't have that high barrier to resistance, so for some reason you can't use diotegravir or bictegravir or you can't use a boosted protease inhibitor, then you want to have three fully active agents to include. And then when we talk about fully active agents, it's really uncompromised activity for the patient's history and the results of um, resistance testing that you have. And I just want to remind you, I won't take you through this, but there are other novel uh, drugs, but just remember there's fostemzivir and embolizumab. They are two different other novel therapies with different mechanisms. Uh, they both work on entry. Uh, one's dose orally, fostemzivir and embolizumab is an IV infusion every two weeks. And again, you can see what they're approved for. And again, both of them heavily treatment experienced adults with multi-drug resistant HIV. And again, always remember, I'm sure everyone knows, but this in combination with your best optimized background regimen, because again, you want to limit, especially if you have limited options, you really want to try to limit the development of resistance. But I think before we end, I'm going to cover quickly. So we talked earlier about the Calibrate study, which was looking at uh, the CAPS inhibitor, lenacaprevir. Now we're going to look at Capella which is lenacaprevir in people with multidrug resistant HIV. And so this is ongoing two cohort phase, uh, two, three trial. You see the study design here. So these are patients with detectable viral loads and they have resistance to more than two agents from three of the four main classes and then less than two fully active agents from four main classes as well. So 72 patients had repeat screen, they read repeat viral loaded screening. And then based on that, whether you had a decline from screening or more than 400 or a decline of greater than 0.5 or less than 400 is determined which cohort you went into. So here you went into the uh, randomized cohort and again, you could see what happened there. So you basically for 14 days got functional monotherapy. So here you got oral lenacaprevir plus your failing regimen. And then here you got placebo plus the failing regimen for 14 days. And then you went on to the maintenance phase, which was either subcutaneous lenacaprevir for six months for 52 weeks plus your optimized background, or here you did oral lenacaprevir for 14 days followed by the subcutaneous injection plus your background. Then there was a non-randomized cohort that basically got loaded with oral lenacaprevir and your OBR, then switched to the every six-month injection. 
all the dosing is listed down here. And again, I don't want to bore you by reading doses, but just keep in mind that, you know, when you're dosing, there's certain dose days you dose, you know, what days and how much you get, and then the actual injection. So the primary endpoint was achieved in a prior analysis where there was a greater than 0.5 log decline in viral load at day 14 in the randomized cohort, which is what you want to see when you're giving a novel treatment. You want to see that you're adding something to that failing regimen. And then again, secondary endpoint of a virus load less than 50, less than 200, at week 26 and 52 in the randomized cohort. And so here we are. This is looking at week 26 and 52. And again, what you see here in blue is having a virus load less than 50 and red is less than 200. You can see the virologic failure, no virologic data, and the same thing over here for uh, week 52. And if you look to the right, I think this is really important and sort of another take-home point is that when you looked at efficacy according to the active agents and the optimized background, as the number of fully active agents increased, so you went from zero to one to more than two, your response rate defined as having a virus load less than 50 increased. So but even here with zero active agents, look, your viral load was still 67% with 179 and then 94 if you had more than two. So really showing how well this drug actually worked. When you look at other outcomes, resistance did occur in four patients through week 26, but there was none after that. All had no fully active agents in the optimized background, leading many to conclude or Wonder is, does this drug have a lower genetic barrier to resistance? I think Christine covered that really well in the Calibrate study. You had mean change in your CD4 cell, was 83 cell increase. And again, remember these are patients who are really multi-drug resistant. The incidence of a very low count, CD4 count, meaning less than 50 cells, decreased from 22% at baseline to 3% at week 52. And then the increase was sort of just the opposite. You went from 25% at baseline to 60% at week 52. Again, as you would suspect, injection site reactions were, were most common. Most were grades one or two. Two patients actually had a grade three injection site reaction. Anyone that had a nodule was a grade one, except one patient with two eight of grade two nodules after the second and third injection. And they both resolved within three days. One patient discontinued due to the ISR. And then as you, we mentioned, these trials are on hold compatibility with the vials. I want to finish up before we take questions and sort of uh, wrap this up for both Christine and myself. So I think we started out a discussion talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis and long-acting injectable cab was now approved for every two months. We did show that breakthrough infections have occurred but are rare. And then delay in diagnoses um, that were seen in clinical trials could be mitigated with sort of the addition of HIV RNA testing to your sort of management of these patients. As initial therapy, subcutaneous lenacaprevir in combination with oral therapy was efficacious compared to oral ART. And then as a switch strategy, using long-acting capotegravir and ropivirine is available now for every one month, every two months, and I might throw in with or without oral lead-in. There have been a small number of treatment failures despite on-time dosing and numerically more were seen with the Q-month dosing. And finally, in heavily treatment-experienced patients, remember lenacaprevir subcutaneously was uh, effective when combined with an optimized background. And I will say, regardless of the number of active agents, there was a response that was seen. I think that is it. And 
we're happy to take any questions you may have, and we apologize for running over, but I think there's some really interesting topics here that we covered today. I'll ask you something, Bill. Oh, yeah. um, we are talking about uh, this new uh, long-acting uh, that uh, at the beginning seems to be the perfect answer to low adherence. But actually, the genetic barrier is not perfect for any of them. So what do you think? Do you think that they are good candidates for low adherence or not? Yeah, no, these, these are great questions. I think, you know, the way I look at it as here's another option. So I have plenty of patients. I, I practice in Philadelphia. I have plenty of patients who, for many, many reasons, are unable to share their diagnosis with family members, friends, and they live with other individuals. So the idea for them of not bringing home a medication is so, so important. And, you know, I always wonder when someone comes in and I, their viral loads are up and why are you not taking the medication? We go through everything that we've learned to do for 20 years. And a lot of it is around stigma. You know, so I, I struggle, you know, because you're right. I mean, what if we get this and we now develop recovery mutations or, or whatever? You know, so I, I do. I agree with you as well. But my thought, at least for where I practice is, you know, for some patients, this may be the answer that they never have to take a pill with them and they never have to walk in with a bottle. You know, I mean, I could write a book on some of the things my patients have told me they do. They stand outside the pharmacy, break the bottle, pour the pills in their pocket. They pour it in a bottle. They pour it in, I mean, everything you can imagine because they don't want to go home with the bottle that says the name of the drug. So I struggle yeah. and I guess we'll see over time. It's, it's very challenging for a lot of patients. Yeah. We have a, a question by Angela. They said, in the setting of PrEP, but I, I would say also of treat, on treatment, of treatment, desire by a patient on dialysis. How do you feel about offering cabotegravir for this patient? Actually, I don't think that we have data on patient uh, on long-acting in dialysis. Uh, so at least I haven't seen them. So it's very complicated to give an answer. I think that his desire for now is not so possible, I think. What do you think, Bill? I'm afraid to say. Um, but no, you know, I actually called the company when when this came up and there was no restriction on use of dialysis you're right it's not studied but you know the question i had is there was no reason to think that you would not be able to use it because they're not readily cleared that was the answer i got when i called and this was more for um, treatment no, so if you call them so either for prep or for treatment so no problem no no so this is good to know uh and i think that they should have a they should underline this information, share this information much more because in clinical practice, uh, you know, this is the first uh, long acting. Uh, and so I think that uh, everybody would be worried about, uh, you know, uh, a decrease in protection uh, along the time. So it's, uh, it's important to this. You know, I think that's the problem with clinical trials. There are so many inclusion and exclusion criteria, which are not how we practice in the field, right? In the field, yeah. we don't say to someone, you're on dialysis, I can't treat you. You have end-stage liver disease, I can't treat you. And so the clinical trials are sort of, they don't answer all the questions we have in the real world. And that's where, you know, you need to supplement this with real-world experience, observational data. I completely agree. 
as well as pragmatic trials. They're important registrational trials, but you know, I look at the registrational trials sometimes and I'm like, this is not the patient population I treat. I'm not going to go on to uh, harp on a horse about, you know, how yeah, about They are all blonde, blue eyes. They are perfect. Uh, you know, while in our clinical practice is very rarely like this. And uh, so it's, uh, it's really something. So waiting uh, in Europe uh, to have uh, long acting, at least in Italy, because I know that in Germany and UK, they are already available because they have a disparate regulation. But uh, so, uh, because in order to have real world data, we have to have the drug. So there's no other way. So we wait for it. And uh, I think that uh, considering uh, the price, uh, it will be difficult to have uh, cabotagravir long acting now in the national health systems uh, since the comparator is the generic uh, TDFFTC. I give the floor to Jessica for the wrap up and I thank you all for your attention and thank you, thank you, Bill. It has been a pleasure to to be with you in, in this program. So, Jessica. Thank you to Drs. Mussini and Short and thanks to you, the listener. To listen to more episodes in this series and to see slides and webcasts on key decisions in HIV care, see the links in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.